we were uh, had a field trip one morning early this week after regular bus routes and time we got home it was 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and um, when I started uh, doing outside stuff there was a cow just bellowing up north and that's pretty unusual now we have several yet that haven't calved so I thought maybe one was having trouble or something like that so I uh, got my boots on and headed up north and uh, found the cow pretty quick and she's one that uh, ha already had a calf and I had seen the calf down south earlier and so I knew that she had just gotten separated from her calf. They weren't right together and she was trying to call her calf not knowing exactly where it was. But the interesting part of it was every time that she bellowed like that, just kind of a high-pitched calling her calf, almost kind of a cow scream, every time she did that, just, just west of our property, a turkey gobbled. So she would moo, the turkey would gobble. She would moo, the turkey would gobble. And this happened eight or nine times, and I thought, this could not be better. Just on Monday, it began turkey season. Okay, So I thought, this is going to be great, this is going to be a slam dunk. So I thought, I'm going to go back to the house, get changed, and it's bow season, get my bow and go out, and I'm going to kill this turkey. So I did that, I go back, and I put on my camo and all that, and, and I get my bow, and I head back up there. It's probably been 20, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, and the cow's gone, but I kind of sneak up there not far from that fence line, and the turkey's on the other side of it, and I start calling, and I literally called for an hour, an hour and a half, absolutely nothing. I didn't hear a, I didn't hear a gobble, I didn't see a turkey, there was nothing. So dejected, I go back to the house, and I tell my wife this story about this cow and this turkey. And you know what she says? Maybe you should have mooed. <laughs> oh, boy. Don't forget, Easter is just one week from today. And uh, that day, we celebrate, Christendom celebrates what we believe to be and, and really is unquestionably the most important event, the most significant event in the history of the world, even though if you look at, um, whether it's computer generated or, or nowadays or old uh, type of surveys and things like that, it falls somewhere down the list. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in human history. It's bigger than any wars. It's bigger than assassinations. That always ranks high. It's bigger than inventions. You see up on those lists generally the invention of the printing press and then of course now the invention of the computer. It's bigger than any of those things. And the reason it's so important is because it affects every single life. Every person on this planet that's alive today, that was alive, that will be alive, it affects them. And not only does it affect every life, it changes every death. It was the great writer Ernest Hemingway, while we were on our recent cruise with our Two of our granddaughters, we stopped at Key West and 
and walked by his house. I was too tight to pay to get in there. But we saw Ernest Hemingway's house on, on uh, Key West. But he said this. He said, every true story ends in death. Famous Ernest Hemingway quote. That's not true anymore because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We're looking at questions for Jesus, and we'll finish this next week on Easter Sunday. And again, uh, by way of kind of explanation of where this goes, um, these are questions that primarily that people ask Jesus uh, during his ministry, during his three-and-a-half-year ministry, and then the implications for us. Now, again, sometimes, occasionally, there are questions that were asked about Jesus, maybe even once a question Jesus asked, and they're posed by uh, friends and followers of Jesus, by enemies of Jesus, just by the crowd who maybe is honestly wanting to know something. Today I want to uh, change uh, just a little bit, and, and to some extent we'll have to kind of race through this, but um, we're going to look at several different questions, about five of them, that people ask Jesus during the final week of his life, and today begins that. Okay, on what we call Palm Sunday is the Sunday before he was put to death, before he was crucified on Friday and then resurrected a week later on Sunday morning. So today on Sunday, Palm Sunday, you would have Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds um, going crazy, welcoming him to the city, um, celebrating that at least he's a prophet and hopefully maybe he's the Messiah. And they do that by waving palm branches and, and so forth. That's why they call it Palm Sunday, and that kicks off that final week. Most of, and, and we know from Scripture, from the Gospels, the Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know from those that a bigger part of Scripture, a bigger part of the Gospels is devoted to what happens in the last week of Jesus' life before his death than any other part of his ministry. And primarily, he taught during those final days. Now, he, he also did some things. He, you see this, he made a fig tree wither that, that was unproductive, that didn't have figs on it. He uh, cleaned out the temples. We call it cleansing the temple or clearing the temple. Uh, getting rid of some things that they were doing and that were going on there that he thought were inappropriate and weren't what God would want. And some other things. And then he taught a number of things, parables and so forth. Not so many miracles, but as he, as he gets ready to be betrayed, to be tried, to be put to death. Let's look at some questions he was asked. First of all, and I won't be able to read all of these. I, I might read a, just a verse or two around each one uh, so that we can kind of get the flavor of it. There's much bigger context there. Um, these will take place from Matthew chapter 21 to Matthew chapter 26. And this first one is the account of the triumphal entry of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew chapter 21. And at the end of that, and again, we talked about that him entering Jerusalem. At the end of that, it says, When Jesus then entered Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 10, the whole city was stirred. 
I would say, excited, um, amazed, and they asked, who is this? Now understand, they've been doing that for several years now. As excitement and, and interest in him built, because of the way he taught, and because of the incredible miracles he did, and this is kind of going to reach its culmination. This is going to be the biggest crowd, the most interested people slash followers, although that's somewhat questionable whether very many are followers at this time. And it's going to reach its peak right now. And then it's going to start going the other direction, down. As the stakes get higher, as it gets more serious, about Jesus, as even followers of Jesus come under suspicion, many begin to leave. But it's at a fever pitch right now. Who is this? And then in verse 11, the last one in that section, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is this? Is he just an ordinary man? Is he like us? Is he a fraud? Now the religious leaders would want people to believe that he, this is a fraud. Whatever he's doing is by trickery. If it is supernatural, it's not God that's allowing him to do this. It's the devil allowing him to do this. They said that before. Is he a prophet? Now that's big but it's not big enough. Is he just a prophet? Is he a king? He would be asked that. Is he perhaps the Messiah? The question we have to ask there of ourselves is, who is he to us? We haven't literally seen those miracles. The ones we see and know about are, are certainly less tangible and less visible, but not any less powerful. The lives that have been changed. Who is he to us? Is he just an ordinary person? Is he somebody that didn't even exist? Others would argue that. Some religions would say, yes, he was someone special. He was a prophet but not the Messiah. Who is he to us? Is he your king? Is he the Messiah? Later in that chapter, chapter 21, verses 12 through 27, Jesus has just cleared, or some versions call it cleansing the temple. He went in there. He saw business going on, a lot of buying and selling and different things that really weren't God's idea of what should be going on in a place of worship. And he didn't call a committee together, he just took care of it. He just got rid of them. He, he threw them out and overturned the tables and told them they need to get their focus back on God, on prayer to God, on service to God. Then he follows that up by going by and seeing a fig tree that wasn't bearing figs, and he caused it to wither. 
to die. Well, it was enemies this time who asked this question. The, the chief priests and the elders of the people said kind of a two-part question, both about his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? And then who gave you this authority? Now, of course, that was, we don't really ask in those kind of terms and even think in those kind of terms, but that was very important for them because they wanted everybody to know and think that they were the authorities. Short of God himself, they were the representatives of God to the people and vice versa, and they had authority. So if Jesus came along and it looked like he had authority instead of them, that was very confronting, confrontive to them. They didn't like that. So, so they, they confront him. They say, now where did you get this authority? By whose authority are you doing this? And who gave you this authority to do this? Well, the answer, of, of course, are obvious, even though he didn't obviously answer them. The authority is uh, God's. It came from God. It was heavenly. It was even his own authority because he was God's own son. Who gave you this authority? God his Father did. The question for us is really who's in charge? Who's in charge of our life? Who's ultimately in charge of this world? Who's the ultimate authority figure here? It's still Jesus. And even though sometimes things look like they're not going the way God would want, and that God's not in control, and He's not the ultimate authority, and believe you me, in just a few days right here, it would look like that for all the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. All of those things that transpired, particularly on Thursday and on Friday and on Saturday, were part of God's plan to save mankind. And He was and is in charge. Question number three. And, and this is a strange one to pluck out of the middle of this. I'm skipping five chapters, uh, go to chapter 26, and, and the account's in verses 20 through 25. And um, again, interesting question, and what's happened here is Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus. And not just that, he's been given money to do that, which seems to be a big motivator in his life. So he's agreed to betray Jesus. The Lord's Supper is being instituted by Jesus. He's starting that tradition with his closest followers. At that point, it would be called the Last Supper. It's in the middle of a physical meal that he shared emblems that are going to represent his body and his blood. We do that every week. That's where we get that. And in the middle of that, we read these words. And when evening came, 
Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. You talk about changing the mood. I wonder if they had any concept of what he meant. I doubt that. But they were very sad. And they began to say to him one after the other, Surely it's not I, Lord. Surely it's not me. And that's in the form of a question. Almost as if they accepted what he said was true, that one of them was going to do that, and that it, it wasn't yet planned, and they weren't sure if they were going to be the one to do it. Lord, it's surely not me. The one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man, or I, Jesus, will go just as it's written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, Judas, the one who would betray him, had already agreed to do that, had already taken money to do that, said, same thing, surely not I, Rabbi, not Lord there, but teacher. And Jesus answered, yes, it's you. Surely, it's not me. How could we possibly betray Jesus? He already died because of our sin. We kind of already did betray him. We sinned. We did what God didn't want us to do. And that necessitated his son dying for our sin. But how could we betray him? By not accepting him? By not obeying him? By not living for him? Surely not I, Lord. Same chapter, 26 over to 62, verse 62 and 63. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? They've just accused, they, they tried to find something to accuse him of, and nobody agreed about that. And finally, a couple of them came forward and said, uh, Jesus said, I can destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And of course, he was talking about his body. But the high priest stood up and said, are you not going to answer? What's this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing. He remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, and I find this interesting. 
he, he implores God and kind of declares an oath. He said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, I would love that. I would absolutely love that if he was serious. If he really wanted to know if Jesus was the Christ. Yes, it's as you say. Jesus replied, it's true. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, he's spoken blasphemy. Blasphemy is simply speaking against God. Jesus, of course, spoke for God. He admitted his true connection to God. The question for Jesus there is also the question for us. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Finally, in chapter 7 and verse 22, and we're just right on the edge of Jesus being put to death. He's being tried. He's betrayed Thursday evening. He's arrested. He, he's tried before different officials all of Friday night and then would be crucified on Friday. In chapter 7 and verse 22, Pilate is talking to him now. And he asked the people, not Jesus, what should I do then with Jesus who'd called Christ? Well, they answered, crucify him. You see Pilate kind of arguing on behalf of Jesus, but what crime has he committed? And they shouted all the louder, crucify him. What crime has he committed? None. 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 He's asking, what, what has he done worthy of putting him to death? None. What sin has he committed? Never. Any. And yet in a few hours, all the crimes, all the sin of humanity, including mine and yours, would be heaped on him. And no doubt hasten his death on the cross. And the question for us is almost the same, just tweaked a little. What would you do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked that of the crowd because he apparently doesn't want the responsibility of condemning Jesus to death 
and would rather set him free, but the people won't have it. What do you want me to do with Jesus? The one who's called Christ. What will you do with Jesus who is called Christ? The obvious answer to that is accept him as your Savior. Almost all of us have already done that. Maybe a long time ago. But that's not the end of it. You can't just accept him and then go on about your business and not do anything more. That's not what a follower of Christ does. It changes your life. Then you commit to obeying him all of your life. This morning as we go into our time of decision, we again offer that invitation like churches all over the world do right now and ask that question, do you believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And what are you going to do with him? If you've not yet answered that and acted on that by giving your life to him, this would be a great opportunity to do that. Let's stand and sing together. Heavenly Father, um, we choose to, to proclaim your son to be the Messiah, to be the Christ that you sent here. Uh, to save us. We choose not only that he is that, but to accept that, accept him. And Father, we pray, having done that, that we'll uh, serve you all of our lives. You'll give us the, the strength to do that, uh, the wisdom, Father. It, it takes that now to uh, discern right from wrong and, and the way you would have us live and sometimes stand up for for you and for your kingdom. And uh, Father, to, to honor you uh, all of the time. In your son's name we pray. Amen.